Within a couple of seconds, there were a number of armed security with great big airport machine guns. An autism patient's daring escape from NHS psychiatric care pits her against some of the most powerful institutions in the state. From the multi-award-winning Sky News Storycast team, in partnership with The Independent, follow Patient 11 wherever you get your podcasts. By the fall of 1981, James Harper was in dire straits. He was still taking classified missile documents to Mexico to sell to the Soviet bloc. But he was increasingly worried about getting caught. And he needed a way out. And then about that time, I'm starting to think I'm going to put this deal together with Bill Doherty on coming up with immunity from prosecution. Bill Doherty was Harper's Hail Mary. He was an ex-Marine fighter pilot, a Republican good old boy with connections in the U.S. military and intelligence world. And most importantly, Doherty was a prominent lawyer who had experience defending American turncoats. A few years prior, he had gained fame as the counsel for a former CIA contractor who was busted passing highly classified information to the KGB. Harper was impressed by Doherty's defense of his client, who was, nevertheless, sentenced to decades in prison. But I guess he thought it was his best, maybe only, option. Finally, I got to a point, I, 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 I guess I got a little nervous about what the hell I was doing. Harper's downplaying things a bit here. He was in way over his head, and he knew it. So Harper got in touch with Doherty, but he had to conceal his identity. He was committing espionage, after all. Over the phone, Harper introduced himself as Jay. Not the best pseudonym for a man named James. Harper and Doherty met soon after at a dingy bar called The Fling in Southern California. Over a Bloody Mary, Harper gave him the highlight reel. Harper used aliases for everyone involved in his scheme. He called Sihojin, his Polish spy handler, the minister. And Hugel, his espionage mentor in Silicon Valley, the big man. At the bar, Harper said he wanted to switch sides again. He had a proposition for the CIA. Let him work as a double agent for U.S. intelligence against the Soviet bloc. Sure, he'd made hundreds of thousands of dollars passing classified nuclear secrets to the Poles, but now he wanted to wipe the slate clean. It might have been a delusional gambit, but Doherty agreed to represent Harper, known only to him as Jay, and to get word back to the CIA. And I started working with Doherty. Mm. And uh, then, then the whole thing gets real complicated. Harper and Doherty began meeting regularly. Sometimes Harper would even give Doherty audio tapes describing his exploits. Doherty would listen to Jay's tapes, take notes, then immediately destroy the audio. Doherty would then relay Jay's tale of Soviet bloc espionage to the CIA. When the agency got Doherty's info, alarm bells went off. A potential Eastern Bloc nuclear spy in California? That's a big deal. 
such a big deal that a turf war broke out over who would lead the probe. CIA wanted to keep the case, and eventually the FBI wrestled the case from them. That's George Arati, who was an FBI counterintelligence agent in San Francisco at the time. The FBI has priority on domestic spy cases like this, and the San Francisco office took it over. The Bureau codenamed the case of this mysterious spy, Tinsel Tyrant. He sought out assistance from that attorney, and he gave him like a long uh, audio tape of things he had done, but in a very veiled way, not enough to determine who the person that's narrating this thing was. That's why they call it tinsel tyrant. You know, tinsel meaning, you know, the cellulose tape. So these step real to real. So that's where the code name comes from. But this unknown spy, Jay, had some pretty grandiose demands. Because he wanted to cut a deal. He wanted like a half a million dollars. He wanted some money, I think. Harper, having made a small fortune spying for the Soviet bloc, now wanted the U.S. government to pay him another fortune to become a double agent for the CIA. It was his most audacious scheme yet. I'm Zach Dorfman. From Project Brazen and PRX, this is Spy Valley. Episode 5, The Doomsday Machine. Since the dawn of the atomic age, we've sought to reduce the risk of war by maintaining a strong deterrent and by seeking genuine arms control. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. 1983 was a hair-trigger year in U.S.-Soviet relations, and Moscow's missiles were on President Ronald Reagan's mind. That year, he delivered what became widely known as his Star Wars speech. Reagan proposed the U.S. develop a laser system that could shoot down ballistic missiles en masse. He believed that if the U.S. could protect itself from Soviet nuclear assault, it would no longer be haunted by the specter of mutually assured destruction. I am directing a comprehensive and intensive effort to define a long-term research and development program to begin to achieve our ultimate goal of eliminating the threat posed by strategic nuclear missiles. The Soviets saw things differently, of course. They believed that Reagan's proposal was designed to launch a preemptive strike on Moscow. And that belief, even if faulty, put the world in unprecedented danger. This was one of the hottest periods of the Cold War. Nuclear competition between the superpowers was as high stakes as things got. And that's the world in which Harper decided to spy for Moscow's allies. So when FBI spy hunters in San Francisco heard about this Jay selling nuclear secrets to the Soviet bloc, it was their top priority. FBI agents fanned out to identify this mysterious spy. There must have been like 40 to 60 suspects that were under consideration as could, could be since pirate. Top officials in Washington had already decided there was no chance they'd make a deal with this anonymous turncoat. Nuclear espionage was simply too grave a crime. Hell, people had been executed for it. FBI agents were incredulous that this mystery spy would even make such a proposition. 
Don Ulrich, who worked closely on the FBI's Tinsel Tyrant case, remembers his shock. You know, apparently the gambit was, immunize me and I'll be a double agent for you. Yeah. And this is oh, not going to happen. It's not going to yeah. work. Right. I've been, giving, I've been giving missile secrets for years. Years to and the, years. And no. now I want to help yeah. you. So, After I have sold out my country to the, one of the most sensitive national defense secrets yeah. on earth. Yeah. How to survive a first strike. Right. Yeah. I mean, gee. Although they were firmly against striking a deal, officials needed to keep Jay talking. So they asked Doherty about his client's activities, fishing for details. By prolonging their quote-unquote negotiations with this unknown spy, the FBI and DOJ were giving Jay all the rope he needed to hang himself. And man, did he talk. Over half a dozen in-person rendezvous and 50-plus phone calls Jay kept feeding Doherty more precise details of his espionage for the Soviet bloc, about his visits to Geneva and Vienna, where he sold purloined missile documents to the minister. He told them that the initial meetings were facilitated by the big man, a kingpin of illegal technology transfer to the Soviet bloc, and that he, Jay, still had upwards of 100 pounds of missile-related documents, ready to sell. He even mentioned those waterlogged missile documents he gave to Moscow's proxies in Warsaw. Eventually, U.S. investigators hit pay dirt because Jay gave up the big man's name, Bill Hugel. The case on Hugel. Hugel, slimy person. Drugs multiple women. What we were looking at through the grand jury was Bell Hugo. He's such a low life, he probably, he's probably a spy. His name had come up. Uh, Harper had identified him yeah. uh, in his notes to Doherty. In truth, Hugel was already a suspect. For years, the FBI had been investigating Hugel's business with the Soviet bloc. Here's the FBI's Bill Kinane. But Hugo was the guy that we looked at first, and somehow we, we got off, I don't know how it happened, but we got off on the wrong guy. But the wrong guy had been in contact with Harper. For the Bureau, Jay's explicit mention of Hugo cemented their connection, and the FBI began tapping Hugo's phone. FBI agents also knew of Hugo's past dealings with the Poles. And they knew that Jay had also identified Hugel as a Polish intelligence asset. But the Bureau wasn't having much luck with its eavesdropping of Hugel. You see, it's easy to forget, amid all this espionage, that both Hugel and Harper were Silicon Valley entrepreneurs trying to score big with new high-tech innovations. This was, after all, the 80s tech boom, a time of great greed with great fortunes being made. It was the Wild West then. They were cowboys. They were on the edge. They were out to make millions of dollars. It was a burgeoning industry. That's Don Ulrich again. Through its phone tap, bureau agents listened in as Hugo wheeled and dealed. At the time, he was trying to raise funds for some type of new semiconductor technology startup. Hugo's tech was full of get-rich schemes. Hugo was on the phone all day long, hustling, and he talked 
ad infinitum with everybody in Silicon Valley at that time about, mm. you know, getting venture capital. But the Urbane Hugel wasn't about to talk about spying over the phone. And connecting Harper and Hugel also wasn't easy. They were estranged. They were not talking to each other, I'm sure, by then. Harper stiffed him. He never paid Bill Hugel a penny. That is, Harper never paid Hugel for their shared spying. Harper said he was really pissed. (laughs) As Harper became increasingly desperate to cut a deal, he kept revealing more to Doherty about his Soviet bloc espionage. He wanted to impress the official speaking with his lawyer. But in reality, he was just providing U.S. spy hunters more clues about his true identity. You know, he gave way too much information about himself in those communications with Doherty. It was inevitable that uh, sooner or later we would find out who he was. I was so naive, uh, thinking that he he could talk his way out of espionage by coming to the good guys and (laughs) telling us all he knew. At any rate, that was was fortunate for us. And there was another critical aspect of the FBI's investigation that Doherty and Harper didn't know about. The CIA's secret mole within the Polish intelligence services, codenamed Caribou. Remember Caribou? from episode one. He was the CIA source who kicked off the FBI's whole investigation into an unknown Soviet bloc agent in Silicon Valley. And I knew, I personally knew the source. The source was recruited in Chicago. Bureau officials immediately put two and two together. Before Doherty ever approached the CIA about a deal for his mysterious client, Jay, FBI spy hunters in San Francisco were already at work trying to chase down those leads from Caribou. From Caribou, the Bureau had already been told that this California-based spy was being run by a senior Polish intelligence officer named Sihojin. Caribou also knew about Sihojin's connections to a Silicon Valley businessman named Bill Hugel. And from Caribou, the Bureau had already learned about this unnamed American spy's trips to Warsaw and the waterlogged missile documents he'd provided to the Poles. The documents that were, had, had arrived in poor, wet condition. Yeah. They had, had to call in Soviet technicians. To, 20 guys came Something overnight. like that, yeah. yeah from Moscow to Warsaw. Yeah, to, to take care of it. The Tinsel Tyrant case and the intelligence from Caribou were on an inevitable collision course. Jay had to be the mysterious American spy Caribou described. And they dovetailed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was obvious they were talking about the same guy. But what was his name? Both sources of intelligence were just ambiguous enough to frustrate FBI investigators. Bureau agents interviewed Hugel's known associates and chased down whatever leads they could glean. And then one day... With a little luck, they struck gold. Just Tinsel Tyrant, he talked about a lot of crap going down in Silicon Valley. Yeah. With a lot of different countries. You see, in his bid for immunity, Jay kept divulging information to Doherty about Silicon Valley-related crimes. And not just his own. 
Jay had a contact, an engineer in the Valley, who was allegedly interested in some sort of illicit deal. They lived in the same area, and one Sunday morning, Jay ran into the engineer on the street. They talked business. But here was Jay's fatal error. In conversation with his lawyer, he named this engineer buddy. Now FBI officials had another name, and maybe this person could lead them to Jay. But FBI agents didn't know what this engineer knew, or his relationship with the mysterious Jay. Hell, this man could be Jay himself. So they had to be careful. Bureau agents couldn't afford to tip their hand. It might cause the whole case to collapse. In March 1983, two FBI agents followed this lead from Jay about the engineer. They went and interviewed this guy very, like, obliquely. And just at some point, they asked him, do you ever remember an engineer or a colleague down in Silicon Valley? And all of a sudden, you stopped and had a conversation with him on a Sunday morning. The guy said, yeah, uh, this guy, James Harper. That's That's how it happened. That was the eureka moment for the two interviewers. They'd never heard that name before. James Harper. We'll be back after the break. Welcome to Europe. Innocent people are getting murdered. Lawyers, journalists, even princesses live with round-the-clock security protection. Special forces guard high-security prisons from breakout attempts by helicopter. How did we get here? This is Gateway a dramatic new podcast series from Project Brazen and PRX that takes you inside Europe's war on drugs, telling stories from the hidden world of cocaine. Listen to Gateway, available now, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. FBI spy hunters immediately revved up an investigation into this new suspect, James Harper. But something didn't add up. Harper didn't currently have a security clearance, didn't work with classified documents, and didn't work on nuclear missile defense. But soon, bureau agents figured it out. Harper's girlfriend-turned-wife, Schuler, had access to a bonanza of nuclear missile secrets. And then they did determine that he's the paramour of uh, Schuler, and then she had a top-secret clearance. Bureau agents didn't have a smoking gun to prove that Harper was Jay. Nor could they prove that he was the same nuclear spy described by the CIA's Polish agent, Caribou. But they did have enough evidence against Harper to have wiretaps placed on his phone and to begin round-the-clock surveillance on him. One day, the Bureau had an important breakthrough. Here's the FBI's Bill Kinane, who closely reviewed the Harper wiretaps. Well, what broke what broke the case is that he got a phone call from what we would call a cutout. Mm. So there was some lady in Europe mm. called, speaking English, and said, uh, how are you doing? You know, uh, we missed you the last couple of months. In other words, he's supposed to go to see them. The woman was connected to Polish intelligence. She was checking in on Harper. The Poles wanted to reignite their relationship with their Silicon Valley spy. She called him, it was at nighttime, and he was plastered. She must have recognized that. She gave him a number 
to call back tomorrow morning. And he got the number wrong. Harper, sloshed, wrote down the wrong number. Bureau agents listened to him dial it the next day and couldn't do anything about it. If only Kanane and his FBI colleagues had been able to slip Harper the right number, then they might have recorded damning evidence. Who knows what he might have said? You know, I'm kind of wetting my pants there, you know. God, what do we do now? How do we, how do we get him the number? You know? But that was, that's what broke the case. You know? How'd that break the case? Because now we knew it was him. The Bureau now definitely had their man. But knowing that Harper was Jay and being able to prove it in court were two different things entirely. So FBI agents sat and watched Harper's every move in the hopes that he would slip up. And that took them on some wild rides. At some point, Bureau agents learned that Harper and Schuler were taking a little vacation to Petrolia, California. A five-hour drive north of the city, Petrolia is a dot of a town in Humboldt County. It's an area of Northern California home to vast clover-speckled redwood groves and mountains that tumble into the ocean. And Petrolia would be an excellent place to hide if you were planning some kind of escape plot. FBI agents knew Harper and Schuler were traveling to Petrolia, but they didn't know exactly where they were staying, and the Bureau needed to find out. What if they tried to make a dash for the Soviet bloc? Or stow away all those secret documents in the Redwoods? FBI agent Pierre Fournier was on the case. They were concerned, number one, that they might have stashed some of the documents up there. And uh, number two, they're also concerned that if he got wind of the investigation that he might try to flee to Canada. So Fournier and his wife Janet, who was also an FBI employee, dressed up like tourists and drove north. So we take off and we we're trying to beat them up there. Well, we actually did. And that allowed them to get the lay of the land. The Fourniers arrived in Petrolia and stopped at a gas station. And, you know, those used to have phone booths. Janet's sitting on the bench, and I'm in the phone booth with my back to her on the phone talking to uh, San Francisco. And I just get the feeling, I, I hear a car come up. I have a feeling that it, for some reason, I just felt I got this tingling that it must be Harper. The Ferniers were supposed to surveil Harper and Schuler from a distance, but now, they were right in front of them. Sure enough, it's Harper. And Harper asked, he said, uh, he asked Janet, because she, she's sitting there, he said, how's the weather been? She says, I don't know, we're just passing through. They go inside. He, I guess he's getting gas. Fernier and his wife Janet quickly hopped in their car and drove out toward a hamlet where they could better see where Harper and Schuler were headed. They parked in front of a random house. But Harper, turning out of the gas station, started driving the same way, directly toward them. And Harper comes out, and they come up to this road, and they look over there and see our car. So they start to turn towards us. And so I've got a map out like we're lost. And they see that, 
and they do a U-turn and they take off this way. Fernier worried that Harper, if he hadn't already, now suspected he was being followed. So Fernier decided to change tack. He drove up to Eureka, where the nearest FBI satellite office was located. It was time to pull out all the stops in the search for the nuclear spy. Fernier needed an FBI pilot to take him up in a surveillance plane so he could better look for Harper's car and Petrolia. We fly down the next day to see if we can spot the car. Oh, you're trying to find his car from the air? Yeah, from the air. Well, unfortunately, I'm in the back seat with, with binoculars that are not stabilized. Mm. And uh, I am getting green. So yeah. we, have, we have to break off. But I thought that I saw the car. So I said, I'm not going up in that plane again. Fernier and his wife continued the search for Harper's car the next day. And when they discovered where it was sitting, they were gobsmacked. So we drive down along the coast at five in the morning. The car is parked right in front of the house that we were parked at. What? The day before. A few days prior, Fernier had unknowingly parked in front of the very house the FBI was searching for. And that's why he turned towards the car. So he got spooked. But then when he realized that we were probably lost, that we were trying to find out, we were looking at the map, then he took off and went, I guess, somewhere else. Since they had located the house, Fernier and his wife Janet could now surveil Harper and Schuler. But they had to be extra careful, since Harper had already spotted them. The Ferniers kept an eye on the two suspected spies until they returned home. Back in Silicon Valley, the FBI blanketed Harper and Schuler with surveillance. A team of agents kept watch on their home. Others eavesdropped on their phones. Bureau investigators had to sit, listen, and wait. And what they saw and heard wasn't always easy to stomach. By mid-1983, Louise Schuler was deeply unwell. She was a severe alcoholic who had been drinking since she was eight years old. Now, she was stricken with cirrhosis of the liver. As she neared death, she began to unravel. Regret appeared to seep into her conversations with friends. Over their wiretap, FBI agents like George Arati heard firsthand. Schuler was on her deathbed confiding to her best friend about her relationship with Harper. But she still had to keep his secrets. And this girlfriend said, how in the world, or why in the world did you get involved in, you know, unsavory character as Harper? Yeah. Because she doesn't know anything about espionage. Yeah. All she knows is she's a scumbag. And she pauses and says, there's only one reason that I've never told anybody and I can't tell you. Meanwhile, FBI agents watched Harper keep himself busy. Fernier would take photos of Harper's movements from an unmarked van across the street from his apartment. On my surveillance photography, we'd, uh, we'd catch him coming out. He was a little overweight at the point. He'd go out for a jog. But Harper's jogs were actually visits to a nearby mistress, Penny Cook. Harper was sneaking off to Cook's house while his wife wasted away. So, Schumer's dying, and then he goes 
ostensibly jogging. And he goes poking fun at her, if you know what I mean. Gets in the shower, comes home, he's all sweaty as if he had to you know, jog for you know, 10 miles. But, you know, so to show you what the scum, scumbag he was. On June 22nd, 1983, Louise Schuler died of cirrhosis of the liver at 39 years old. She was so addicted to alcohol that she apparently snuck in a bottle to her sickbed. For someone so central to this story, Schuler remains something of a mystery. She never had the chance to really explain herself to her friends, family, or the law. Why she did what she did what drove her to become a spy, and why she latched herself so closely to James Harper. When I asked Harper, many years after her death, to describe Schuler, he paused. It was the only time I'd heard him express something like regret. Well, that's, that's a long story. She was... Uh... She's a I mean, complicated person. Yeah. Uh, really good looking and, uh, and and fun to be with. Oh God, she she give her the bizarre. That that that's what meant most to her than anything. Give her the bizarre. Whatever else Louise Schuler wanted out of life, she got that. Harper, too, seemed drawn to the strange, and perhaps grotesque. To FBI agents like Larry Turbush, who helped monitor the tap phone, Harper's reaction to Schuler's death was odd at best. And then he's talking to friends after she died, talking about how she died. I mean, what was his tone about her dying? Was it? It was macabre. Yeah. And she was, he talked about her coughing up blood, huge mouthfuls of blood. And just a few months after Schuler died, bureau agents discovered that Harper decided to elope with his girlfriend Penny Cook in Nevada. But was this a ruse? Were Harper and Cook planning on lambing it? <clears throat> we knew on the phone, from the phones, that he was going, they were going to go to Nevada to get married. And the date and planes and made all the connections. And said, well, that's what they're going to do. But then they said, said what if he doesn't? What if he goes someplace else? Turbush was told to trail Harper and Cook to Reno to make sure they were really getting married. He even followed them to the chapel. Harper seemed blissfully unaware of the intensive surveillance he was under. So he returned to Silicon Valley with his new bride. But this honeymoon period wouldn't last long. Harper's phone tap clearly revealed a man who was up to no good. He talked to his brother about the wisdom of stashing money in the Cayman Islands. He spoke to his first wife, Colleen, about how he'd, quote, never have to work another day. He told his daughter that he felt, quote, great about not paying any taxes. Overall, though, Harper's tap line didn't provide any smoking gun. But it certainly exposed him over many months of recorded conversations as a man obsessed with his finances. George Arati again. After his arrest, he was trying to eke out a living being a, an engineer. Yeah. My recollection was that he wasn't like willing and dealing anymore. He, he was like willing and dealing to save his ass. Harper was like a broker yeah. of information. Yeah. He was a 
sociopath. Money, money, money. FBI spy hunters were closing in on Harper. But they didn't have any evidence of Harper discussing his nuclear espionage. Nor did they know where the classified documents he had were hidden away. They needed more if they wanted to arrest Harper. And there was one last source of information that could help put him away for good. But obtaining it? That would be as risky as it got. That's next on the final episode of Spy Valley. Spy Valley is a production of Project Brazen in partnership with PRX. It's hosted, written, and reported by me, Zach Dorfman. Bradley Hope and Tom Wright are the executive producers. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo. To find more of Goat Rodeo's work, go to goatrodeodc.com. The lead producer is Jay Venables. Story editing from Siddhartha Mahanta, Jay Venables, and Max Johnston. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadolsky and Ian Enright. Creative producers at Goat Rodeo are Max Johnson, Rebecca Seidel, and Ian Enright. At Project Brazen, Lucy Woods is the producer. Georgia G is lead researcher. Marianne Hell Gonzalez is our project manager, and Megan Dean is programming manager. Ryan Ho is the creative director. Cover art designed by Julian Pradier. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Music from Goat Rodeo and Blue Dot Sessions. Editorial and production assistance at Goat Rodeo from Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, Jay Venables, and Megan Nadolsky. Polish translation and narration by Hannah Kozlowska. Narration recorded at Outpost Studios in San Francisco. Continue to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes. And subscribe to Brazen Plus on Apple Podcasts for exclusive reporting and bonus material.